0: Alright, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Peter, it's it's really because we're at the end of Second Peter. Uh, and I mean when you think about it, we started we started First Peter three years ago. So we started first Peter about three years ago, a little bit more than that. Uh, which means it actually took us longer to do first and second Peter than it did Peter. Uh, so we we've sort of, you know, we have we've taken breaks along the way and stuff like that, but but how do you sum up, like for example, as we're coming, this is sort of our summary, you know, Second Peter look, how do you sum up a book like that? How do you sum up uh, this book that we've been really digging in, and digging in because like we said when we started, not a lot of people go, hey, you know where I want to turn to do my daily Bible reading today? How about we read 2 Peter again? Right? Like, that's normally not someone's like, top five list. They're not like, well, Romans, then of course 2 Peter. Uh, they only read 2 Peter if you go, let's try and figure out some of the weird stuff in there. That's the only time people ever run to like 2 Peter. So if I was going to sum up 2 Peter, if I was going to say one verse that sort of encapsulates the message of 2 Peter, it would be 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. And so that's what, uh, let's look there. Let's, uh, and, and we'll look at this one verse and then we're going to look at a whole lot more verse. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of Pray, Father, my prayer today is that you would stir up our minds, our minds that are sincerely focused on you right now that are not here at some sort of game, but are here because we love you and here because we honor you and give you the worship due as King of Kings, uh, our Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would stir up those minds of what we've read in Second Peter. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, and, and and that's kind of what we want to do today. We're gonna to do what Peter calls us to in Second Peter chapter three there. Uh, I want you, I want I stirred up by way of reminder as we kind of now take a look at second we do in, in one sitting uh, what we did in, in about a year, sort of get a grasp on Second Peter. But but first uh, let's begin by why something like this can be important, because we could go, okay, we've gone through this, and we could just start on, we're going to have our State of the Church Address coming up, maybe, uh, and then we'll look at prayer, and then other, so why not just go into those other things? Why do a reminder if we've already walked through the text? Well, you of a reminder here, but just in general terms for us, what good is it to go back and take sort of a bird's eye look at what we've, we've looked at intricately uh, for these last few years. One is that that can be a good barometer uh, for a Christian life. It can be a good evaluator. We've been handling the text. Some of the big truths from Second Peter, um, you can ask yourself, do I remember these? Do I remember these things? Not necessarily can you fill out. It's not like, hey, who can fill out their note sheet right now uh, before we even go over it? Uh, because uh, that, that's, that's not what I mean. Not, not sort of could you answer this as a test, but really do you have these big truths, more importantly, stored in your hearts? Have they, the things of big ideas that Peter has laid out for us, that God has laid out for his people, have hearts or have you forgotten them? If I've forgotten them, or if I think, oh, wow, I, that was really important. I remember, like, because what we're going to do, just to let the cat out of the bag, we're going to read through all of 2 Peter today. We'll read through all of it. We'll read it. We're reading through verses. If you get to a verse and you go, oh, man, I loved that verse when we read it. Or, man, that, when he, I remember when we preached on that, and that was so good. and think I forget that. It's sort of, sort of what? what happened? It can be a good time to ask yourselves those sorts of questions. If I loved it when I heard it, why did it not change my life? And it might just be that at the time, it can be that the Holy Spirit is pricking you in four or five areas as you're reading, and maybe you love this, and you also love this, and and God in His sanctifying work in your heart was working out other things, and now He is reminding you, because we just saw from, from Peter's does use reminders. It's not a, it's not a one-shot vaccination here. Uh, that The Lord does tell us and then remind us of certain things. But sometimes, not remembering something, when we're reading through these texts and we're going back over this, if you see this and you don't remember, sometimes that can be a good wake-up call for us. To ask, you know, what are we doing with the Scripture that we get every week? If if we hear things, uh, if we hear things and hear on Sundays, and then they make little to no impact in our lives, then then something is amiss in what we're doing. We're we're probably not meditating on the things like we're supposed. to. We're probably not chewing on them. May, maybe maybe we think of this time like a ritual. Maybe we're more Catholic than we dare to admit. The way I did my church service, I had my church time. It can maybe be that we just need to be a little bit more diligent throughout the week. To remember these things, I, I always tell people a great practice, something that I always encourage people to do, is with your normal Bible reading is to every day read the passage. Just read the passage that was preached on Sunday. You might be in 1 Kings, in your Bible, in 1 Thessalonians or wherever, but do you know where we all were, where God put all of our body together to learn together? This passage. These passages, so chewing on that, just read and, and just remembering what the verses are about. And going through the, you know, hour and a half that I talked about it. on. So I'm just saying, so we go, sometimes that doesn't take very long, right? But just reading those things, getting them, making sure. So asking yourself, if I'm not remembering these things, is it because of the way that I'm handling Scripture? Maybe not on day, and then maybe on Tuesday, and maybe Thursday, Why is it that these things that are the Word of God are not changing my life? How can I forget these things? Or more importantly, why do I not see these things in my life? So, so I ask as we, as we look through the book with a big lens, I want you to ask, how have these texts changed your life? Now, again, that, which has nothing to do with how well I preach it. Right, has nothing to do with how good my stories were, uh, my illustrations. My job, ultimately, is just to help you understand and apply the text. So the question then becomes, I mean, truthfully, there is nothing special in what I do. My job is more about faithfulness than performance. So if we can spend, like we've done, if we can spend over a year on a book, life not be noticeably different from that book then something's going on. If we can dig deep into the mine of you walk away with empty pockets. So sometimes going over a book like this can be a good wake-up call for you to go, okay, I didn't remember a lot of that. I need to start doing something different. And if you want ideas, you can come to me. We can. I can work out things you can do just to help, little practices, spiritual disciplines, whatever. Uh, but... But this can be a good wake-up call. How can I make sure that these things are actually, you know, impacting? Uh, But we also, I think one of the things we also need to be careful of is assuming, as you hear that, assuming, yeah, that's going to be me. Because for most of us, and probably all of us in some way, the barometer will not be totally negative. You will see how God has used Second Peter to change your life. So it's not just, we're not just reading 2 Peter, so I go, and I can't believe you don't remember it. You know, uh, we're going to read 2 Peter because you're going to see the faithfulness of your God In working some of these things, this will be a time of encouragement where you're going to see as ham-fisted as my application of the word is, right? You're like, I feel like I haven't done any of those things very well. As ham-fisted as you are and as ham-fisted as I am, the Lord is wonders in your life through those texts. So this will be also not just a time of testing, but a time of a time of rejoice. You know, some, sometimes going back over these texts will be like being reintroduced to old friends that have really shaped your life. And you'll remember, man, it's been I mean, it's been a year since we were in second Peter, chapter one. You might look at some of these texts about what God has done for you and go, oh, wow, I remember. It did shape my praise and it has shaped my view of God and what he calls me to do. I mean, those things you can rejoice even as we're going over. Uh, some of these things. So it's a good barometer. It's a barometer that shows us what we need to be. Just how God is working on us. Those are good things to remember. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, is it, it helps remind us of the forest. And sometimes, as we spend time walking through these various passages and explaining them and applying them, it can be easy if, if to spend like over a year in Second Peter and walk away and us not know what Second Peter is about. Right? To have, uh, so we can have this weekly sort of text explanation uh, and each individual text and what it's talking about. But if we're careful, we'll keep those texts like so many bits of scattered debris, right? Never actually stacking them together and seeing how they work together for what God is trying to teach us in whole. And so remember, in Scripture, God has not given us segmented verses. God has given us whole letters, whole books. So, so understanding the individual verses is supposed to help us, is teaching us. So, so we we want to ask: Is is that what I've been doing? Have I been taking these verses and using them to help me understand the book? Uh, and, and again, if you haven't been going back over previous verses, rereading the text, then what you've you've probably well explained but scattered puzzle of Second Peter. Where where you can I, that piece right there, Second Peter chapter two verse seven, that's an eye, you know. And you how does that fit with this part and chapter one and chapter three? Like how do you get it all work together? So this is gonna be a good time to pull us back from those individual pieces and start piecing them uh, together. We want to see the book as a whole. So so let's do that. Let's look at the puzzle. Let's see this big picture view. And to do that, we'll get up into three easy sections that we'll be reminded of before we read it. The first one is that we need to remember and respond to what God has done. That's chapter 1. And First Peter, break, or second Peter breaks up into really good chapter breaks here, really clear themes. Uh, chapter 1 is that remember and respond to what God has done, that, that God has, it, just as we're going through it, you'll see God has gifted us salvation, He's given you everything that we need uh, for, for life and, and godliness, He's made us to know Christ, He's made us to know His salvation, all of it as a gift, but, but then... He, he doesn't just tell us to remember, Peter tells us how to respond to those thoughts. So when you've remembered what God has done, what should you do? Well, Peter tells us, if God has gifted us all of these things, then we should get to work. We should get to work with building on what we know. And remember, that's where uh, in First Peter, you saw over and over, he used the word speedily, diligently, make every effort, uh, that. Again, I hate that they translate it different, uh, in different verses, repeated over and over. The one thing God's telling you is, if this is true, then get to work and get to work now. Get to work now. Uh, And we do that, Peter tells us, because all of this is real. Because the Word of God is not a man-made myth. This is the eyewitness accounts of the glorious life and work of Jesus Christ. So he says, so real faith, genuine belief results not not in a Christian life that is all theoretical, but one that comes, uh, as they say, out of your fingertips. It's seen in your life. If all of this is real, then we need to get to work and do it now. But then we get chapter 2 where he talked about the dangers of false teachers. The interesting note, remember, from chapter 2, this is the only time that the word false teacher is used in the Bible. Uh, the, that word false teacher appears in one verse in Second Peter chapter 2. That's the only time that, that you'll see a false teacher mentioned. Um, Peter's instruction is to recognize and either run from or run off false teachers recognize neither either run from or run off false teachers. And in many ways, chapter 2 is warning us about those who are going to keep us from doing what it's talking about in chapter 1 and what it's going to talk about in chapter 3. These false teachers are going to mess up what Christ has done for us and not call us to obey Him, or they're going to mess up what God is going to do for us and lead us to not obey Him in that. So this warning here in chapter 2 is watch out for people who are going to throw you off of these book-end statements. And so what do false teachers do? Just a, a quick bullet list he, he laid out for us. They bring division in the body based on man's word and not God's word alone. They will willfully reject the clear teaching of God's word, denying their master that they claim to have. You know, Peter warns us to stay away from these people for your own health. And that, that one, that all false teachers, although they're different in their description, they're united in their destiny, which is destruction. That false teachers will use temptation to attract. They are bad for the gospel. They're actually using you to grow themselves. They treat God's word like plastic. So people like that, Peter says, you've got to run from. Uh, you've got to run them off. Because although they promise freedom, and that's what they're trying to sell you, in the end, they're the ones who are really slaves, and they'll enslave you with them. And then we get that last chapter, chapter 3, remember and respond to what God is going to do. Chapter 1 was about what God has done for us in Christ. Chapter 3 is about what God is going to do to us and to all of creation. It tells us that this fallen world is passing away. All its sin, all its worldliness will be burnt away. The the very building blocks of this worldly kingdom, as it calls the the elemental spirits, the elemental things of this world. And a new kingdom is going to come, one that is growing in our midst, a kingdom of holiness and Godwardness. And we've seen that kingdom growing in our own hearts. We've seen it growing in our homes, in our churches, and in the world. We wait for its culmination. Well, how do we wait? So that's the idea. So again, so re- remember what God is going to do, but how do we respond? He says, if you're waiting for a kingdom like that, and you're like, man, I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth, what does it look like to wait for those things? Of holiness and Godwardness. What does it look like for someone who's truly waiting for those things? It's not someone who just has a great eschatology chart. Right? It's not someone who can tell us, you know, 21, I had to figure out what year it is, 21 reasons Christ is coming back in 2021, which just seems like that'd be an easy, I mean, if, you're, if you can do 88, surely you can come up with 21. Uh, so, so, you know, that Christ is coming back or whatever, like that's not, that's not showing a rich understanding of, of the end. What is, is are you living a holy life? Are you living a Godward life? That's what you should be doing. And so that's, uh, and then he ends it with, and do it all for the glory of Jesus. That's that last verse that we spent, I think, nine weeks on, ten weeks. And so with that reminder, let, let's read the book then. Let's read Second Peter as a whole. And let's pray that, that our minds would be stirred up by way of this reminder. So Second Peter will begin in chapter 1. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And a great verse to think about when thinking of 2 Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials." And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feel of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts, trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness?" "...waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters." that was nine minutes nine minutes that's always encouraging when you're like hey i could read the whole book in nine minutes i mean that's like uh that's like a couple of commercial breaks um so so what do we do with that what do we do with second peter let's take second peter and i just want to give you some general application for second peter for us as a church things that uh, as a pastor i would shepherd you uh, uh shepherd us toward the first is that God tells us to to remember and and respond to our salvation, but he but he also tells us how. And he tells us that if we're thinking about our salvation and we're responding to it, then we will get to work and we'll do it diligently and speedily, as Christians. So that's my question: Are you in your Christian life seeking to grow as a Christian diligently, speedily, rigorously? so that you won't be ineffective or unfruitful he says and and if we, he says if we don't work speedily then that must mean that we've forgotten why we were saved and we've forgotten the eternal kingdom for which we hope So could you say that your work for the Lord as a Christian, when you look at your Christian life, you can say, okay, so Paul repeats that, or Peter repeats that word over and over in chapter 1, speedily, quickly, make every effort, hastily. Can I look at my life and saying, I am making every effort in my Christian life? That I am as I would be as a worker in my job. The truth is, some of us who are very hard workers in our jobs are very lazy when it comes to our spiritual life. Some of us who wouldn't want to be caught dead being the one leaning on the shovel, right? That's what, when I worked for Mr. Jack, that was the one thing I didn't want to do, be the dude leaning on the shovel, uh, who would never, didn't want to be caught dead doing that. In our Christian life, the shovel is laying on the ground, right? Can you say that when, when, when Peter says here, if you are thinking about what God has done for you, if you're considering your salvation, if if your salvation, if you're remembering it, then you will be diligently working to grow in your Christian faith. Has your commitment to the Lord been a half-hearted commitment? Because the danger, the danger isn't that I just want, like we all want to get A's as a church. That's not the danger. I mean, that is part of the danger. We do want to get A's as a church. But the greater fear, Peter says, is that a half-hearted commitment to the Lord shows a half-hearted love for the gospel. That if you truly love the gospel, God doesn't have to convince you to be to work hard. If you truly understand what God has gifted you, what he's graciously given you, if you're remembering those things, then, you, then your sincere mind will be stirred up. You, the, 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 gospel, the gospel won't have to work on you like a cattle prod. The glory of the gospel will entice you to diligently work out your salvation. So has your commitment to Christ been half-hearted? And again, that that goes back to what we looked at at the beginning. How diligent are you to take what you learn? Like when we talked about taking the text, how diligent are you to take what you learn and cement those truths in your mind and in your life? And truth is, as Christians, we are really good at remembering and responding to the faults of others, but not our own. And we're, as Christians, we are sadly better at complaining than we are confessing. And even though one of those is a command and the other is a sin, we're better at looking out than we are at looking in. We're better at noticing other people who are dogging it and being lazy than we are ourselves. We've taken the mirror of reflection and turned it around on everyone else. Peter is calling us here to the general Christian task, elementary task of God's Word and saying, you need to remember and respond to what God has said to you and you need to do it quickly. So Christian, do not play with your sin. Do not neglect your Christian growth. Those are two ways to be half-hearted in your growth as a Christian and in your commitment to the gospel is to see your sin and not hate it and instantly kill it. To go, well, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as that person's over there. It's got some really bad stuff. Or to see, not your sin, but to see what you the good that you should be doing and to lazily try to get that in your life. Well, I know the type of husband that I'm supposed to be and I'm sure by our 50th I'll be there. Right? I know the type of father that I'm supposed to be, and eventually we're gonna start doing these things. We're gonna start. We are so gonna be the godly family. I know the type of church member that I'm supposed to be, and I know it's I'm not supposed to be doing this or that, but but and one day, one day I'll get there. Be those things now. Work diligent. And if you see any failures in your part in those areas, don't just look at them and go, huh. Right? Get rid of them. Work quickly. Work diligently. Be committed to get rid of the things in your life that shouldn't be there. And be committed. Work speedily to develop those things that should be there. And don't rest until they are or until you die. Remember the gospel and respond to it and do it. Quickly. That's a, I mean, that's a good rubric for every Sunday, every time you open your Bible, just for life in general. Remember the gospel, respond to what you see, and do it quickly. I wish that as a church we were track stars, that we were sprinters. Like every one of us, I think, as Christians, we're like, I'll do cross country. Right. I'm going to I'm the guy who's going to it's going to take me eight years to develop this in my life. But but I'm going to get there. We can't all go. You know, the tortoise ended up beating the hare in the end. Like that's just a lazy way to want to be the tortoise, Um, especially when the tortoise isn't really entering the race right now. If you look at him, right. Uh, We need to be sprinters in obedience to the gospel. Well, if you see something in your life and, you know, this shouldn't be there. Get rid of it now. And if you see something in your life as we're moving through, you go, I need that in my life. Do not rest until it is there. Work diligently because you know who's working that in you so you don't have to be disappointed. You know who's wanting you to even do that work? It is God in you working that for his good pleasure. It is God who is working those things. So if the idea, I mean, that's what's so amazing about it. When we feel these convictions, we know it's from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit who will not abandon us, who is the power to work it out. So either we go with that and go, yeah, God's actually going to work this in me, so let's do this, or we're going to go, eh, I'm okay. So Peter says, get to work and get to work quickly. Work diligent. Look at your Christian life. Can you say that as a Christian, you are a diligent Christian who works hard? on your Christian life. And I mean works hard the way not our generation defines working hard, but the way real people define working hard, right? Are you diligent like that? The second thing is uh, has to do with chapter 2. I'm going to take an application for chapter 2. Maybe the danger that you face is more similar to the, to the warning of the false teachers, I mean, so, so the, church, the church should be on the lookout for anyone who tries to, to subtly, and, and that's important, false teachers, remember, are not just bombastic blowhards who just get up and, and, and whose craziness is obvious. Peter says that it happens secretly or, or subtly. Beware those who do the things that the false teacher, that he warns about that false teachers do. Those who are more set in their opinions than they are in God's Word, who will reject the clear teaching of Scripture in favor of their word, who will use people's natural temptations as a way to attract them to their side. Beware of those who'll treat God's word like plastic, who can mold it to say anything they want it to say. Peter warns, although they may grab your attention and, and there may even be positive outward outcomes, in the end, they are bad for the gospel, they're bad for you. And, and here's, a, here's a thing to reckon that I've seen as, as a pastor, most people deal with false teachers. When, when we think false teachers, we instantly think, well, either my pastor is a false teacher or not. Is Zach a false teacher? No. Is Chris a false teacher? No. Then I'm okay. Most people who deal with false teachers in their life, that I go and they've had false teaching that someone has told them about, has, is, does not come from their pastors. It comes from Aunt Molly or friend so-and-so or this person at their work or whatever, and that person has been feeding them things that are not true and has been teaching them to believe things that aren't actually... And if I could take this rubric and say, whenever you're having a conversation with someone, and they're trying to lead you to something, you need to measure the conversation by what Peter is saying here. Because you'll probably find out there are a whole lot more false teachers in your life than you expected. That you can't go just because I don't turn on TBN, and 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 I'm not watching Joel Osteen, that, that I'm fine. That there are there are dangers like so we don't want to just go oh I've got good pastors so I can skip chapter two there are there are dangers in this world that we must be careful of it's not just about who you listen to on the internet or the radio or who's in your pulpit you must be careful and you and you've got to be careful because Peter tells us that these dangers are not obvious right that's part of the problem this isn't this isn't someone who says hey come here, you know, let's quit listening to the Bible. It's not, I mean, that's not, oh, a false teacher. Like, that's not how it happens. That's not. What, what does he say? It's not just someone who does that. In fact, these false teachers are going to pull their Bible out. So you can't go, well, I was talking, but then they got their Bible out. It, Peter, Peter's going, that's what the false teachers do. That's the secret part of it. That's the, you can't twist the Word of God. You can't treat the Word of God like plastic if you ain't using it. But if when they pull their Bibles out, you notice the characteristics mentioned above. That they're stirring up disunity in you. That in the end, you're looking, I think they're really just set in their opinions. That instead of leading you away from your temptations, they're feeding your temptations. You ever been in a conversation with someone who seems to want you to get upset? And you're like, I shouldn't be upset. And they're like, yes, you should. Uh, And you're like, I don't think I should. Uh, That's what false teachers, they take your temptation. So they're not just like, they're not just bringing the Bible and women into the conversation. They are using your natural inclinations. And instead of encouraging you to kill your sin, they are feeding it. That's someone to watch out for. And also, don't be that. One of the dangers of Second Peter that I think we miss is some of us can be guilty of being a false teacher like this, doing these sorts of things. Can, look at the dangers here and ask, can I be guilty of these same things when I talk to people? When I talk to people and they ask me, what should I do? Or when I'm even telling them what life is about or little subtle things, you know, what, uh, you know how to think about jobs or marriages or how to think about their, their wife or their kids. You know, when you're telling people how to think about those things, you are teaching them. Are you being a false teacher to others? So look, say, do I, when you talk to others, do you focus on your opinion or do you focus on the clear Scripture of God's Word and call them to obey their Master? Do your words are your words leading to division or unity in the gospel? Instead of urging people to run from their temptations, are you helping them to give in to them? I mean, the truth is we'll even have scripture to back up what we're doing. But we know if we're actually twisting that scripture or not. We know, we know if we've got an opinion and we do the whole concordance search to find now, where might I find my opinion in the Bible? Where can I find a scripture verse that is close enough to my opinion that I can use it in this conversation? Some of us in our our conversations look far more like the false teachers than we do the church that Peter is calling us to be. So I think we want to be careful not to skip chapter 2, right? Not to say, well, we're at a strong church with good pastors who love the Bible, so I don't have to worry about false teachers. That's not what Peter is saying here. Or maybe you need to be reminded of the last one. Maybe you need to fix your eyes on what God has promised. Maybe you need to remember and respond to what God has done. But, but God has not only told us how to view the end, He's told us how to respond to it. And what does He say? You respond to the end with holiness and godliness. So the first question is, are you, are you living a holy life? I mean, it's really, it's really easy to, be, to get tied up in eschatology or end-time stuff. But, but Peter says if you're really concerned about that sort of stuff, if you're really interested, if you really believed about the coming of the kingdom of God, if you really long for a place where righteousness dwells, as Peter says, then you'll live lives of holiness and Godwardness today. That that's what shows real interest in the things of heaven or the things to come. Like if, you, if heaven is really your hope, then you will live a godly life today. That's why when people say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good, that's impossible. Mindedness, you will be of absolute earthly good. Because you will be living a life of holiness and godwardness right now, today. I mean, some, of, some, of, some of you are really familiar with what you think is going to happen in the end. Some of you are dead wrong, but that's okay. Because what's the point? What can we all know for sure? Is no matter what your view of the end, one thing that is clear for everybody is that we know what it looks like to live in preparation for the end. And that means, one, to live a holy life. So is your life one of holiness, where you are set apart and sinless? You and I are supposed to live lives that are different from the world around us. Is your life a holy life? If our lives look just like the lives of everyone else around us, it's hard for us to look and say that we're living a whole... That was the problem with the Israelites, right? You look just like the Gentile nations. You're just like them. We can look just like everybody else's life around us and still be living a holy life is absolutely contrary to the story of Scripture since the beginning. If we've got the same goals, the same habits, the same sins, Peter says if we're living with the end in mind, we'll not just be separated from the rebellious world around us, we'll be set apart from sin itself. So as a Christian, one of the ways you show your desire for the end and you show your expectation, what God is going to do is you hate your sin and you run from it. You live a life of holiness. And, And the best way to live a holy life, or you could say what goes hand in hand with living a holy life, is a Godward life. Remember, you can go back. I didn't do it. I started to do it as I was, you know, I started to retranslate Second 2 Peter as I was reading it to the parts I don't like the translation of, but I thought that'd be confusing. But remember, every time it says godliness there in Second Peter, I think a better translation is Godwardness. I gave you permission to scratch it out in your Bibles and write it. Uh, I just think it's a better translation. Um, but that's the idea, is that as Christians, we're supposed to be living Godward lives. What does it mean to live Godwardly? It means to live a life devoted to God, with your face pointed, your face set like flint toward God in everything that you do. He is your focus, He's your reason for living, He's why you do everything that you do. Every area of your life is done godwardly, not just Sunday mornings, right? Every area is done for Him and for His glory, not to, to live God, not, not to live a life with God in it, but to live a life that is God-oriented. That's what we've got to do. Where God is our focus, He's what drives our, our choices, our, our activities, our, in our, our marriage, our careers, what we do with our money, how we parent, all are done with God as the driving influence for how we do them. How has God influenced every area of that life? And, not, and that's the, the important thing. Not just how has God influenced those things, but how is God in control of those things? Not just changed how you parent, not has God changed, sort of changed what you do with your finances. How are those things God word? That's what Peter calls us to. And the truth is, some of us are not living very Godward lives. We're not being Godward in our marriages. We are very me-focused often in our marriages. It's all about what they have or haven't done to either make my life easier or harder. You know who else views their marriages like that? The lost world. Get on Facebook and see people talking about how good or bad their marriages are, and it's all about, girl, you just do you. And either he helps you do you or you need to kick him to the curb, right? Unfortunately, as Christians, our marriages are far too similar to that than they need to be. Because when talking about this is my struggle in my marriage, very little is it my struggle in my marriage is I'm not living godwardly and I need to. It's, well, she's like this, or he's like this, or she's done that, or he's done that. Look, your marriage needs to be Godward, not just you with God on the side. You in your life need to be focused and oriented toward him and him alone. You need to be more concerned about what your marriage says about God than what it says about you. Some of us aren't being Godward in our parenting. We're preparing our kids for everything in life except for the life to come. We spend 15, 30 minutes a day on Bible stuff, if we're lucky, talking about how important God is, but then we'll spend hours preparing them for things that are totally ancillary. Our, we'll devote hours to other things that in no way develop their godliness or Godwardness. We'll prepare them for sporting success. We'll prepare them for academic success. We'll prepare, prepare them for career success. We'll prepare them uh, for interpersonal success. But we do not think I need to make sure that as a parent everything I do is done Godwardly. Some of us aren't being Godward in our finances. I thought I'd bring this up in 2020, right? When finance got tough for everybody. It's a good time to bring it up. Why? Because when bills get tight, if God is the first one who gets cut, then something is wrong. It shows a lack of faith. It shows a lack of hope. And the funny thing is, when I've done it, I know it. Right? When I go, you know, I used to give this much, but eww, Maybe I'll give this much. What is that showing? It is showing a lack of faith in God to take care of me. Because I thought I can only give this much when my surplus is already this much. So uh, I, I talk about giving, not because of anything other than the fact that the Bible talks about it a lot. So, I mean, open open your checkbook. Look at what you're spending on. Does anyone have checkbooks anymore? Open your websites to your banking apps Right? See what you're spending your money on—the entertainment budget, the house budget. Look at how much. I mean, look at how much you spend at Amazon each month, and ask: Are my finances Godward? And again, I'm not. And that's what I want to make clear. Am I talking about tithing and giving to the church? Yes, but I'm not just talking about that, because you can give 10 percent, 15 percent to the church and still not be Godward in how you're spending your money, because you got to be Godward with 100 percent. Because it's all his. So it's about being Godward with all of it. If, 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 if you're, if, if, I mean, timing is like the lowest bar, right? If, if everything else is just one, then you can't say if, let's say again, 10%, 10% of your life is Godward, but 90% isn't. You wouldn't say that you're living a Godward life. So if 10% of your finances is Godward, but 90% percent is it, what makes you think that that, that 90% it, that you're That you're being Godward with your finances. And this is a struggle. It is more of a struggle in the United States than it is anywhere else because the Bible warns us, the more you have, the harder this will be. The more blessed you are, the harder it will be to give up any of it. So remember, so those sorts of things, remember what is coming, remember your purpose and live lives of holiness and Godwardness in every area. And those are just three big areas that scripture talks about. I mean, I could, we could have, we could have done seven areas. And we do all of this. Why? Why does Peter say we do all of this? We do all of this for the glory of our Lord and Savior, why should you remember and respond to what God has done? Why should you run from or run away false teachers? Why should you remember and respond to what God is going to do? For the glory of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, that verse alone will be enough to spur you to every bit of obedience, every bit. For the glory of my Lord and Savior. So really, what, what is your life lived for? I mean that's what Peter's asking us. Step back and look at it. Look at what God has done for you in Jesus. Beware of those who take your eye off of Him, and then look toward what is coming. Or when you do that, one word will slip from your lips. One word to describe how you respond, and it's glory. Glory be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When? Now. And to the day of eternity. But it begins now. Let's pray. Again, as we talked about at the start We don't want to quickly run from anything. So if there's anything today that the Lord convicted you of or you thought, man, I need to work on that. You know, some of the dangers can be we can we can hear it early in the sermon. And even by the time we get to the end of the sermon, we've forgotten what it was. Take a moment and just think, where did the Lord prick my heart? what sort of thing should i work speedily toward getting rid of and and recognize already already the temptation to put it off right already the temptation to not be speedy about it already the temptation to not change to not to not to not run to your spouse and say i'm sorry I'm sorry for last week or last year or the last five years, I'm sorry. Not to, not to look at your life and say, we're changing our home and it's going to look like this. Not to look at these things and say, this is what God has called me to do because of what he's done for me. I will do it and I'll do it speedily, speedily. But what, what conviction has the Lord laid on you? And Christian, he says, a, a half Hearted commitment to him is a half-hearted love for the gospel. And none of us, none of us would want to be half-hearted in our love for the gospel. Well, then we can't be half-hearted in our obedience. So let's take a moment and pray. Let's ask for God's grace because we've heard these verses before. Let's pray that we'll be stirred up by way of reminder. Father, we come to you today and God, we ask you that you would stir us up that your word would stir us to be obedient in all of these areas, that, Father, we would would work diligently and quickly, that we'd be on the lookout for anyone who would take our eyes off of the job that you've given us, and, Father, that we would live uh, lives of holiness and Godwardness. Father, help work these things in us. We know that you're the one stirring us up, and you're the one who will help us to complete it. How do we know that? Because of your son, Jesus Christ. That's how we know you will keep your word. You will make us holy. You will lead us godwardly until we're with you at your right hand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.